The magazine of fantasy and science fiction emphasized literary quality, style. Uh, the mere fact that they had the word fantasy in the title showed they were less interested in strict science fiction. Horace Gold was interested in more in the reaction to scientific advance than to the scientific advance itself, which made, in some cases, for more sophisticated stories. These were not Campbell-type stories. Once again, the center of interest had moved away from scientists themselves towards society. You're listening to Canary Cry Radio. Now here are your hosts, Basil and Gons. Hey everybody, welcome again to Canary Cry Radio. My name is Gons. Uh, Basil might phone in. He's somewhere in the Midwest, somewhere in some, some place in time out there. So if he figures out a way to call in, we will definitely welcome him into the conversation. Uh, but tonight we have this very special guest. Uh, he is a professional filmmaker, a writer, and designer for over 20 years. Uh, he's an award-winning screenwriter. His first feature film was To End All Wars, starring Kiefer Sutherland. Uh, but he's also written other feature films, documentaries, and promotional videos. And Brian's also an author and international speaker on art, movies, worldviews, and faith. He's the author of the Chronicles of the Nephilim series, and book one, No Primeval, and book two, Enoch Primeval, book three, Gilgamesh Immortal are out, and we are eagerly anticipating Abraham Allegiant, which is the next in the series. Uh, and he was kind enough to send me a copy of a book called Myth Became Fact, Storytelling, Imagination, and Apologetics in the Bible. It's Brian Godawa. How you doing, Brian? Well, pretty good, Gans. Uh, what are we going to talk about with all that stuff? <laughs> I don't know. There's a lot to tackle. I have, I have a, a, an idea, an outline of what, what I want to talk about. But uh, basically, the first uh, thing I want to tackle with you is in the last podcast that we posted... I mentioned that I think there's going to be somewhat of a revival or maybe a renewed interest in the Bible, in especially in the Christian institutions, uh, based on a lot of the research coming out on the Nephilim. And, and really, yeah. we're talking about the Divine Council and Dr. Michael Heiser, and, and uh, we spoke to him uh, a few episodes ago. And so, but, you know, right now we're experiencing a little bit of backlash. And, and, you know, I know that firsthand because we've tried to do conferences at various places and we've been turned down and things of that nature. So do you think there's actually going to be a rise of interest in this topic? And, and how does it relate to your work, uh, writing the Chronicles sure. of the Nephilim series? Sure. Yeah. No, I, I actually think that we are in the midst of, uh, a kind of a transformation in the Christian, uh, church in, and I think it's tied to, the inevitable uh, awareness that we are going to have to become a, more aware of the ancient Near Eastern context and background of the Bible. That's where I think the primary uh, transformation is occurring in that more and more Christians are starting to say, hey, you know, I've, I think this is what the Bible says, but, you know, what did the ancient Israelites, what was their culture like? You know, we read so many different uh, weird things in the Bible that kind of don't make sense, and we, we think we can make sense of them, but uh, a lot of them we can't. And even some things we do think ma make sense, they understood it so differently back in that time period that we don't realize that unless 
we do research into finding out all this Bible background. So, um, and I think that it's it 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 was triggered by uh, actually by liberal critical theology, which basically, you know, many years ago, at the turn of the century, there was the the uh, the attempt to try to sort of explain that the Bible was just myths, made up fairy tales, and they did do you know research into ancient Near Eastern backgrounds, but they also started to criticizing the uh, the biblical text and trying to deconstruct it basically and explain that it's really not what it says it is or what it appears to be but if we look back into the various sources and we look back into uh, you know whatever and they came up they constructed actually fantasy theories of how the bible was put together artificially it wasn't just written you know uh, by Moses or you know what have you and I'm not you know I, what what I think is happening is there's there's um, there was a reaction against that by fundamentalism, and it sort of said, oh, you know, no, they're all wrong, so we're going to um, we're just going to believe what the Bible says straight up and literally. And by doing so, they back the evangelicals back themselves into a terrible corner that is not ultimately defensible because there is, uh, you know, even if you disagree with the cr the conclusions of critical uh, th theology that does try to undermine the Bible, there is still a lot of truths in the facts that they may uncover. It's just their interpretations that are twisted by their presuppositions. So what I'm saying is because of the whole sort of current cultural climate in, you know, I think in America and in Christianity as well, I think that there's more of an attempt to understand that cultural context, how they would understand it, not how we would understand it. And in so doing, there, and I feel like I'm in, 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 the, in the midst of that myself because in the last five years or six years, I've gone through that journey myself where I've sort of started realizing, hey, wait a minute, you know, the way that I would read it may not be how it was meant, so let's find out how they thought. And I think that that's the heart of it. And then part of that what what part of that comes in is the you know the whole giants and the nephilim and the, like you said the divine council and michael heiser also was very very extremely influential on me in fact it was his writing that opened me up to the whole storyline of giants in the bible that i really was only vaguely aware of and didn't think it made much sense but then i saw the storyline and once i saw the storyline i realized oh my gosh i've got to write the novels and that's what sort of inspired me to write the novels but the whole th context of the divine council and how that operates, and basically, it's very, very similar to an ancient Mesopotamian bureaucracy in heaven, and um, you know the heavenly host and how God interacts with them and such. Um, you know, it the way to understand it, if you understand the ancient Near Eastern version of that divine council, because all pretty much all the religions had that version in it then you begin understanding the Bible. But if you don't have that and you just read the Bible straight, as an evangelical, you'll you'll tend to try to change the definitions of sons of God. Oh, they're 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 earthly judges. They're you know it, it's the Israelite judges who are like gods to men because they rule over them. And basically what you end up doing is you end up imposing your own cultural prejudice mm. upon the text in the name of trying to save the literal reading of it. Here's the problem is that when the evangelicals threw out the baby with the bathwater, what they did was they rightfully rejected the conclusion of critical scholarship that all oh, the Bible is just made up fairy tales and doesn't make, you know, doesn't, it's not true. 
but they threw out a lot of the facts and when they did that they backed themselves into a corner so now we're at this point where the stuff because we now even a hundred years later we now have so much literally thousands of ancient manuscripts that we never had a hundred years ago that we now do understand the background of the Bible much more than we did a hundred years ago and it's clarifying a lot of things that we didn't know and if you don't acknowledge that you are going to become not only irrelevant in the negative sense in that but you also are going to miss the scriptural truths that are being revealed and you are going to become basically a foolish Christian with your head stuck in the sand saying no no I I, I read Genesis 1 literally because that's what God said it's literal it's literal and it's like oh no you do the research and my conclusion is the options are not you either believe the Bible literally or you believe it's it's all myth and fairy tale and therefore you don't believe the Bible no in between there's this ability to realize that the Bible is full of different genres of literary of literature and genres have certain things that just like our fantasy literature nowadays has uh, some conventions and formulas or just like a horror story or just like a love story we have these conventions of things that we use in our language so they did too and you start to discover that a lot of the language in the Bible is a lot more figurative than Christians want to admit but that doesn't mean it's liberal that doesn't mean you're saying oh the Bible's not true it just simply means they did it like we did it so for example you have things like the language in Joshua entering Canaan, the promised land, you know, and he talks about mm -hmm. how, yeah, we killed every man, woman, and child in these different cities, you know. But then within the Bible text itself, we see right after these passages that they didn't kill everybody because it talks about people from that city still being alive. Right, right. And so the, and, and, and so the liberal then says, ah, see, the Bible contradicts itself. And I'm, I'm saying, no, you don't have to come to that conclusion. If you realize, oh, wait a minute, this kind of extreme language was used by all military endeavors in the ancient world. You can find it in Assyria. You can find it in Mesopotamia. You can find it in texts from Ugarit, and once you realize that they all said we killed them all and slaughtered them all, but they didn't, you realize that's part of their puffing up their own, how can you say it, their, their own public relations, you know, and, and it was very standard to do that, and they understood that, just like nowadays we might say, oh, you know, the, uh, the, the football team, you know, Right. Pick your football. Pick right. your football team. They 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 slaughter the enemy. Right. 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 Well, they they didn't slaughter them. Right. So the more you start to see their this kind of stuff is in the Bible, the more you start to read it through their eyes and not our eyes, and you start to realize that a lot of what we thought was just good old, you know, reading the Bible on the plain face of it, actually, is our own modernist Christian Western prejudice imposed on the text and that's ultimately liberalism <laughs> right you know so so that's that's the big picture thing that sort of launched me and once i started to read the divine council and realized you know what the divine council and all the language of the sons of god throughout the text it, it really is a, a, a divine bureaucracy and it's, it has nothing to do with human judges on earth because it's the same way that it's interpreted in all the ancient near eastern uh you know cultures and then that's where it opened up the picture to me, uh, the storyline of the Nephilim, because that's where Genesis 6 comes in as being, for me personally, that was always Genesis 6, 1 to 4, where it talks about the sons of God came to earth and saw the daughters of men were beautiful and they, they mated with them and they, you know, bore and, and they had Nephilim, and Nephilim were in the, in the earth in those days, et cetera, et cetera. And Nephilim, of course, is giant, is a, the Hebrew word, Hebrew Aramaic word for giants. And uh, so once 
so so I had always known that passage and just considered it one of the weirdest passages in the Bible. But then when I started reading Heiser and he kind of opened up the story, I started realizing, oh my gosh, this isn't just an obscure passage that talks about maybe there was giants, but that's about it. This is connected to a whole storyline that is connected to the seed of the serpent at war with the seed of Eve or the seed of, of the woman through history. And then I started seeing all these other sporadic little passages that I would just read and say, oh, so-and-so killed this giant, you know, and so-and-so killed that giant. And you're like, oh, okay, whatever. Right. And we all know, we all, of course, know Goliath. But then I, something I never realized in these passages in Joshua really talks about how Joshua was deliberately seeking out the, the uh, cities that had giants to eliminate them. Right. <laughs> and you're like, wow, so... So this storyline, this storyline that comes that comes alive by by realizing that this passage in Genesis 6, 1 to 4 is not just some bizarre mythological referent, because everybody, all the ancient religions talked about giants, no. But it's also not just this obscure reference that has no connection to anything else, like it seems to be when you start to put the connections and you see it throughout the scriptures and you start to see that storyline. That was the inspiration that um, fired me up for the Chronicles of the Nephilim. Yeah, and I, I share a lot of the aha moments when you start reading through the Old Testament through sort of the divine counsel lens, and we've talked about that in the past. But it seems like the uh, the church you put it well that they sort of threw out the baby with the bathwater, you know, in the, yeah. in, in the last, you know, hundred, 150 years or so as materialism or, you know, reductionism became sort of the platform for any, you know, accredited truth. Right. And then science sort yeah. of championed it. You know, it, it seems it's, it's interesting to me when we start looking at scientists today who are pretty much imposing you know, philosophical views and, you know, cosmological views that, that they really have no business doing. And, yeah. and, and I would say that in some sense, what the standard Christian apologetic that we receive today or what we, you know, what we're taught today are very yeah. much uh, rooted in that, you know, logic, reason, empiricism, and looking at yes. history and things, and which is great. I think it's totally necessary. Yes. Um, yes. But it's the same tools almost that the materialist worldview uses, but in the pursuit of uh, defending the gospel, how important do you think storytelling, imagery things of that nature is because, you know, I think you mentioned in, in the book you sent me uh, early on, you said that 80% uh, of the Bible yeah. is imagery, symbolism, metaphor, poetic, figurative language, and only 20% is actual abstract logical propositions. So yeah. how, do, how do we, how do we shift that, that thinking as, as a church body? Yeah. You know, that's a, that's a really big issue. And I, I think that the, uh, in my, in my book, word pictures was my first book that I started to deal with that whole issue. And, um, and that was once you start realizing that, that, um, oh, oh so, so what I, I like what you were saying. And this idea was that many Christians are unwittingly operating under the same paradigm as atheistic, uh, secular thinking all in the name of evangelicalism, right? Because this, you know, and and I'm I'm as conservative as it comes in terms of theologically. So I, I'm not, you know, I'm not a liberal. I'm not a postmodern. I don't believe in the postmodern Christian church, you know. But I also, but I don't, but I'm not a modernist. And what many Christians don't realize is that when they use their strictly literalist paradigm, reading the Bible literally all the time with everything, you know. And I'm not saying it's either or here. My point is the either or mentality is precisely 
modernism. So you are doing the same thing the atheist does when he comes to the Bible. He says it's either it's either um, interpreted this way or it's it's all wrong interpreted this way. And so uh, once you start to realizing that there there is so much imagination in the Bible, and what you realize is imagination up op- and c.s lewis talked a lot about this and he had his own journey of revelation in this area imagination is not the same as the clear cut and dry phenomenal interpretation of your empirical senses which is science or your rationalistic impulse which is you know a reason and rationalism and like you said those are the tools of the of the enlightenment now they're not evil tools and they're not entirely wrong but when they when they are elevated to the primary or or ultimate position that Christians have given them so uh, yes we must defend the Bible to be absolutely empirically true and scientifically true and all this kind of stuff as we understand it right when you do that you are actually imposing the same atheistic paradigm on the Bible because God himself in the Bible uses those notions of you know, empirical senses and rational thinking, very little. He, I'm not saying he doesn't use it, and I fully support that he does. God says, you know, come and let us reason, says, says the Lord. And I, I say this in word pictures. I, I validate the fact that God is logical and God uses reason. However, logic, reason, and observation, science, are not the ultimates when it comes to knowing truth. They're just one form of knowing truth. Right. But we we have neglected imagination. Now, imagination is not... It's a lot murkier. It's a lot more ambiguous. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it doesn't, for those of us, and I've, I basically have lived my, I've basically studied apologetics for like 25 years, and much of my life was driven by apologetics because I love it, you know, logic, reason, philosophy, all that, and I still do love it, but when I came to realize that I was, those were becoming almost idols of perception in my life in terms of Mm. discerning truth through that and i completely lost the imaginative side in my theology and i never did as an artist but i did in my theology when i read the bible and um and why because if you start to say that if you start to 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 approach the bible from the imagination side things are not black and white there's a lot more gray area there's a lot more um, and I'm not talking necessarily morally here. I'm just simply saying in terms of understanding its truth, there's a, it's a lot messier. Mm. Why? Because the Bible is not a systematic theology. Systematic theology basically organizes according to a scientific paradigm. That's not ancient. That's not the ancient way of doing things. I'm not saying it's wrong, but what I am saying is it's not the way the Bible did it. Therefore, the, the Bible does not have the clarity of modern science. It uses story to communicate theology, not um, not the you know scientific or uh, mm. philosophical l- discourse. Mm. And so, because it doesn't, it does you know in some areas it does you know obviously there's historical elements, there are some philosoph- philosophical elements um, because the Bible is a mishmash of a lot of dis- different genres, but it's not this one unified book of doctrine that is scientific. You know that's kind of a thing. So because its dominant paradigm is through storytelling, then you have to understand how does storytelling communicate truth? And that's where you have to say, uh-oh, when the way storytelling communicates truth is a lot more ambiguous at times because they use a lot more poetic language. They use a lot more figurative language. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more exaggeration. There's hyperbole. Uh, and it's all mixed in with, unfortunately, a lot of times it's mixed in with history 
and with it it mixed in with logic right and so you'll have like you'll have you know all over the place a prophecy and the prophecy you know and then we're talking about the old testament here for first for starters but you could go into revelation to the book of revelation but you know there's all kinds of obvious figurative language like oh you know sis when sisera came and fought against israel the israelites you know there's a passage where it says oh you know the the stars of heaven fought against fought against sisera you know and you're like what does that mean? And then it and then it, it shifts back to historical descriptions of how they Israel conquered um, Sisera in this battle. And so what I'm saying is, it yeah, it is historical, but unfortunately, it also meshes in a lot of poetry. So you have to, you know, you have to study your search to show yourself approved. You have to be able to accurately pick apart what these meanings are and what is history and what's figurative and what's exaggeration, what isn't. And that's the that's the thing that's hard. People don't like that because that makes it real. It makes it not black and white. If you could just say, "Nope, the Bible says God God created on seven days," so if you don't believe in several literal days, you believe you don't believe the Bible. Well, that's a lot easier to just say that than to say, "Well, you know what? There are literal days, but it doesn't really match the the what we know about our observations in science." And we also look at the creation narratives of other ancient Near Eastern cultures, and we find them very similar, do, saying a lot of similar things and doing a lot of similar things. And we realize that it's not scientific at all. And so, you know, rather than thinking you either believe Genesis 1 is literal or you're a liberal, no. Both sides are liberal that say uh, the bio, Genesis 1 must be scientific, and one side says it must be scientific, it must be literal six days, and the other says, no, they could be figurative days, but they still match our science. Both sides are actually imposing a modernist paradigm, because in reality, ancient creation narratives had nothing to do with what we know of modern science. Therefore, it's not speaking about the physical creation of the world of physics and the quantum world and all this kind of stuff. It's not talking about that. And once you understand that, that's not liberal at all. That's actually the most conservative viewpoint because you're interpreting the Bible as it was intended to be interpreted by its original writers and readers. And the liberal approach is actually to say the Bible must, this is my argument, the liberal approach is when you say the Bible must conform to modern scientific theories of of the way that the world was created because it's like you're imposing your own modern world upon an ancient text. Right. And that that in my mind is what's liberal. So this is this is the problem where Christians are just afraid of of you know the slippery slope if i start emphasis if i start looking at the imagination in the bible and all the figurative and poetic language and start and start embracing this i'm going to slide down the slippery slope and in the end i'll just think the whole bible is nothing but myth and that's not true that's just simply not true right piggybacking on that that question and answer there is there uh do you have any examples where um especially looking at some Old Testament passages that the whole sort of paradigm of the Nephilim and the Genesis 6 paradigm, I guess you can call it, it can be used to help understand some of it. And I know you mentioned already uh, Joshua. Um, is, is there any other examples? Because it seems like, you know, I'm just having a hard time picturing your standard apologetic course, uh, you know, it, it, any kind of Christian institution bring up the Nephilim as part of your argument, you know, to defend some of these verses. <laughs> so, so is there, is, are there more examples uh, that you can think of just off the top of your head? Well, yeah, you know, there's, um, 
there's one passage that I've just been dealing with, uh, which is a passage in the Bible that is one of those surprises where, like, where you understand it in this context, and all of a sudden it's different. Right. And it's uh, Genesis 14. Um, Genesis 14 is a passage where it talks about Abraham, or Abram at the time, rescuing his nephew Lot, who was, who was taken by these four armies from Mesopotamia who came and swept through the land and and uh, and and then they ended up uh, ending up at Sodom and Gomorrah and and the reason why they came was because they weren't paying their taxes and uh, so anyway Lot gets captured because he was living at Sodom at the time and this armies came and they they beat up Sodom and they took a bunch of captives including Lot and took the booty and they were on their way back to Mesopotamia and Abram discovers that oh my gosh you know they took my nephew and so he leads an army he leads a f- armed forces that include several other uh, Amorite tribes who are helping him, as well as 318 of his own warriors to go and capture Lot back from this army that no doubt had tens of thousands of men in it, right? And, you know, this is one of these passages that that, um, I just have been dealing with it because I just finished my most recent uh, book in the series called Abraham Allegiant, and it should be released at the first of April, and I'm going to have a big release for it and stuff. So, April one, it, it should be available. And um, so, this passage, you know, we always think of Abraham as, oh yeah, Abraham's this nice pastoral guy with his sheep, and he gets the call <laughs> of God, and you know, but actually, Genesis 14 reveals that he was a warrior, <laughs> and this is that doesn't fit our paradigm. Number one, and it's like. Oh yeah, but that's just one passage, Brian. You can't form a you can't form a doctrine based on one passage. Well, the problem is is of all of Abraham's like hundred years of life in the Bible, it only touches upon a few incidents here and there, so it leaves out most of his life. So it's leaving out a lot of stuff. And right. so yeah, I can say if there's one passage that passage that reveals he's a warrior, then we have to conclude yeah, he was a warrior, and it's okay to believe that doctrine. Uh, but that's just the start of it, because the bottom line is, is when you read that passage, you find that it, it in standard sort of historical approach, it describes these, these four kings from Mesopotamia um, coming through and hitting these certain cities in Canaan before they ended up at Sodom and Gomorrah. And and all these cities, it mentions these, these characters called Rephaim, Zuzim, Emim, Horites. And they're saying that they, they basically took all these cities and wiped them out before they ended up at Sodom and Gomorrah. And Sodom and Gomorrah was their ultimate purpose in the first place. And if you look on a map, you see their journey of where they ended up. It was a really out-of-the-way journey. And when you look up what these words Emim and Zuzim and Horites and Rephaim mean, you counter them to other passages in the Bible, get a standard concordance, look up those words in the, in the Bible, you find out that all of these are different words of giants in these different cities. And what you start to see is there's a pattern in, the, in, in these kings. They're literally hitting cities that have giants in them. And why would they do that? What, what is their purpose? Well, you know, I think the, short, you know, the, the answer of it is these cities were along the king's highway. And the king's highway was this major traveled route from north to south through the land of Canaan. And it was the dominant access for trade from the north in Syria and the Euphrates River, way down to the south in Egypt. It was a key highway 
for trade. And these giant cities were, some of them were along that road, but some of them weren't. But basically, I think that, that um, and this is speculation now, but, but it's rooted in the text. And that is, these kings knew that they had to take out these mightier uh, cities in order, to, in order to subjugate the region and you know, claim that highway to, to make it free and open for, for trade. And they had to specifically take out the giants because those were the guys who seemed to be having control over the land. And they took them out before they ended up at Sodom and Gomorrah, which was their ultimate end goal. So in my novel, Abraham Allegiant, I actually have a much more developed, very fascinating theory behind what's going on at Sodom and Gomorrah that makes it so important and and why are these giants connected to Sodom and Gomorrah and you'll just have to buy the new book to get to find out what that is but um, but that's just one example where it mentions cities and it mentions these giants but it doesn't say anything about it but you have to see the pattern and the connection and then you start to see that same connection ends up later in the book of Joshua and the book of Numbers right yeah they, I was gonna they, where the people of yeah, where Moses and Joshua, before they go into the promised land, they have to take the Trans Jordan, which is the op, on the other side of the Jordan River. It's not part of the promised land, but they have to take out all the giants there before they go into the promised land and take out the giants in the promised land. But uh, the the thing is, is they're specifically targeting these giants, and then when they go into the promised land, talks about the Anakim. And the Anakim are basically, it says they're giants and they come from the Nephilim. And then you say, and then, and it's the only other place in the Bible is Numbers 13, verse 32 and 33. The only other place that the word Nephilim is used other than Genesis 6 is there. And it says that in the, you know, that the Anakim, if I can, well, maybe I should find it here and uh, Numbers, Numbers 13. 1333, which says, um, this was the spies. The spies came back to, to, to report to Moses um, that the land which we have gone to spy out in Canaan is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw, <laughs> and there we saw the Nephilim. And then it says, the sons of Anak who come from the Nephilim. We seemed like ourselves, like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. And so you start to think, okay, so they're giants, so what? But there's this very interesting notion here. It's saying that these Ana Anakim, which is another word for a certain strong, large tribe of people, sons of Anak, and they come from the Nephilim. Well, the Nephilim were before the flood. So... That becomes problematic for your theology if you believe in a global flood. Uh, but, uh, but if you don't believe in global flood, there's still some issues that you have to deal with. But the problem here is they come from the Nephilim. I thought everything was wiped out. All the bad guys were wiped out in the that, flood. That was part of my next question was what your theory is on how the Nephilim returned. And, and is it weaved into your the Chronicles of Nephilim? And how do you actually... It, it is. It is weaved into Neph in the Chronicles of Nephilim. But... I also respect the fact that within Orthodox Christianity, there are different interpretations that are all possible and legitimate. And, and I try to write the, the, the novel series so that any view that you have, you could still sort of... Hang on one second. <laughs> this is what I was afraid of. Hello? What's up? 
Hello? Hello, can you hear me? Can you hear me? I can hear you. I don't think you can hear me, though. I hear something. Howdy, how's it going, Brian? Hey, Basil, how are you? You know, I'm doing the best I can. I'm <laughs> out in the middle of the U.S. here and trying to get my internet to work, and we're going to try the best we can, uh, but we'll see what happens here. Well, you guys you're... could excuse me for just one moment. That moment turned into several moments, and we couldn't get a clean connection with Basil, so Basil decided to come back later, but we continued the conversation with Brian, but before we get back to that, check this out. In the primeval history of Genesis, an ancient war began between the seed of the serpent and the seed of Eve. Fallen angels called Watchers begot a race of giants called Nephilim, their goal to stop the bloodline of the promised seed. But God had other plans. Chronicles of the Nephilim is a biblical fantasy series of novels that charts the rise and fall of the Watchers and the Giants in the stories of the Old Testament and in between. Noah Primeval, Enoch Primordial, Gilgamesh Immortal, Abraham Covenant, and more to come by author and Hollywood screenwriter Brian Gadawa. Available on Kindle and paperback at Amazon.com. Go to chroniclesofthenephilim.com and enter a world of ancient history and biblical imagination. That's chroniclesofthenephilim.com. <laughs> okay, that was a failed attempt. He might try a little later. He's going to try to find not Applebee's to get some okay. internet connection. <laughs> so, I apologize for that. It's uh, very no unprofessional. Um, okay, I'm sorry. We were, we were uh, what was the question I asked? Well, you know, another one, in addition to the, the Genesis uh, 14 one that I mentioned, would be um, in Numbers 13, uh, 32 and 33, where, um, which is a very key, key verse in terms of understanding how the Divine Council and the Nephilim applies to understanding the Old Testament text differently than normal. Because in, that, in, that, uh, in those two verses, this is... To, just to set the stage, you know, we have basically Moses and Joshua are, um, you know, they're they're in they're near the Transjordan. I think they're in the Transjordan area, but they they send spies ahead to go into Canaan to spy out the land. And the spies come back to them, and this is what they say: they say, um, the land, though the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed like our, to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Now this is obviously talking about people of great height, and you know, you look, in the, you look elsewhere in the Bible where it talks about the sons of Anak and the Anakim, and it very clearly says these guys are giants, and uh, some of them are really tall and really huge, right? And so they're talking that they see a lot of these giants in the land. And on one level, you could say, okay, fine, fair enough, I, I accept that. You know, and they come and they, they killed some of those guys because they were big and they needed to clear out the land for the sons of Israel, yada, yada. But there's something very interesting here, and that is this verse is the only other place in the Bible where the word Nephilim is actually used. And if we, you know, if we go back to the Genesis 6, you know, we say, oh, well, the Nephilim were in the earth in those days, and the Nephilim come about from the sons of God uh, cohabiting with the daughters of men. And the 
you know, I think that one of the strongest interpretations of the Hebrew there is that these these giants are the result of the cohabitation of the sons of God from heaven with the daughters of men. So if you if you understand that and accept that, then you have to say, okay, but in the flood, didn't the flood wipe out all living things? And if the Nephilim were living back then, and now it says the Nephilim a thousand years later during the time of Joshua, right. what? These guys came from the Nephilim, and then that means Nephilim survived the flood. So now you have to say, well, what does that mean? Oh, the Bible's myth and it contradicts itself? No. You, what you have to realize is there's, there's, there's several ways of interpreting this, and all of them are legitimate within the Orthodox Christianity. There are several ways of interpreting it. In my novels, I try to actually write it in such a way that each viewpoint can find their own you know, their own interpretation there, mm. because, because I'm not sure. And at the end of the day, I could be wrong, right? So, um, and so let me explain. If you believe the flood is global and killed everything, then either you have to believe that the sons of God started to cohabit again with the daughters of men, and that's where they came from, or you have to believe that there's a genetic, there's some genetic strain of Nephilim in one of the daughters of no, in one, I'm sorry, in one of the wives of right. the sons of Noah, because they were the only eight in the ark, right? And uh, you know, basically, the Bible says Noah was pure in his generation, and and you know, the language of that has a, a sense of ritual purity to it, and um, and 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 a Levitical type of purity. So it's probably a genetic purity, especially in light of the the context of Genesis six. Right. And so if Noah was pure and his wife was pure and his sons then ended up being uh, logically pure then it would have to be in one of the wives that there was a genetic strain of some kind of the Nephilim. And all these are legitimate. Or, you know, lastly, you could believe that, you know, and there are legitimate uh, Bible-believing Christians who believe that the flood was not global. It was local. And the language there is hyperbolic. And a lot of it, we misinterpret it through our literal eyes. So these are all legitimate interpretations uh, within Orthodox Christianity. And like I said, in my novel series, I try to make room for all the views so that people can appreciate it no matter what you believe. But here's what's important. These Nephilim were part of the cause, part of the, connected to the cause in Genesis 6, why God brought the flood. Yes, God did bring the flood because of man's sinful, sinful nature, but it also says that the land, all the flesh was filled with violence, and the Nephilim were part of that flesh that was filled with violence. So they are a part of that sin that God brought down the judgment of the flood. And so now if you're saying that these current giants come from them, well, there's a connection here in the mind of the Israelites that's going on, which basically connects them to being that evil seed, because that was part of the evil seed that God wanted to wipe out, and it never, it, it never fully got wiped out. And um, I actually do appreciate, um, I think on one of, your, one of your last shows, I think it was, did I hear it on, yeah, I, 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 Rob Skiba, and I, I've read a little bit of his, and I appreciate some of his uh, theories about how he thinks that, you know, biblically that there's not actually, I think he makes some good arguments, let's say, not I don't think they're entirely conclusive, but I think he makes some good arguments for that, you know, there, there may not have been any more uh, sons of God cohabiting with the daughters of men after the flood. Right. I, think, I think that there was, and I bring up my theory based on, and it's, it's interpretation of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, but I could talk about that later. But, but mm. uh, so what's important here is that these sons of Anak are tied to the Nephilim, and that's, you can already see there's a theological pinning coming in that, that connects these together, but it also shows 
that God's not finished wiping them out yet, and he's going to use the Israelites to wipe them out. And then in Joshua later, where you see that, that Joshua specifically targets the Anakim, he says, I went through all these cities, and what, in Joshua 11, and it says, you know, and I got rid of the Anakim in all these cities. So Joshua is deliberately wiping out the Nephilim who are connected back to those pre-flood guys, and they're, and they're all described as giants. So there, in other words, the, there was part of the plan of wiping out the people of the land of Canaan was not just to clear it so God could take it. There's an evil, evilness to these people there, and you know, I think it's dominantly connected to their religious, you know, the religious system, obviously, of idol worship and all that. But nevertheless, there's this seed of the serpent versus the seed of the woman theme that, uh, or meme, as we now call it, right, that, that is actually replaying itself out. And that's one, one other case where I think you could, you could say, oh, there's a lot more to this passage than just saying, oh, there's giants in the land, let's go kill them, you know? Right, right. Yeah, and actually looking, Numbers uh, 1333 was something I recently looked at, I think yesterday or maybe the day before, uh, because the argument against this idea that there are Nephilim at all in the uh, the post-flood world is, you know, because a lot of people bring up Numbers 1333 as sort of a defense of like, hey, they mentioned the Nephilim, the giants here, you know? Uh, but if you read on to Genesis 4, or I'm sorry, Numbers 14 in the next chapter, God actually puts to death the two, the, the men who actually brought the bad report, the, the bad mm-hmm. report in Hebrew, I, I can't remember the Hebrew word for it, but it basically could mean slander. And so the argument yeah. is, look, it's slanderous, you know, they didn't actually mean giants, they were just trying to scare the Israelites, to, or the rest of the Israelite tribes to not have to go into those lands when, you know, Caleb uh, was saying that, you know, it's the land of milk and honey and things like that. And I kind of struggled with that, but I, I feel like I came to a point where both can still be true. Yes, they were actual giants, but it was yeah. the use of the, the, the excuse, if you will, that there are giants and therefore we shouldn't go in that, that the Lord was upset about and therefore put him to death. So I don't know. Have you, yeah. have you looked at that sort of? Uh, yeah. And I've actually, I've actually read some Hebrew scholars as well. And, and they've, you know, like in the word, the, the word commentary series, uh, Gordon Wenham, he's, he's brilliant. Um, and, and, and other, and other Hebrew scholars who actually point out that no, no, that the bad report is not saying that they're lying or slandering. They're just saying, they're, they're saying that the report was an, a, a report of, of negativity. We can't do it, you know? Oh, and I so I think there are scholars on, on the other side that actually do support the notion that no, no, this idea of saying it's a bad report is not that they're lying. It's, or not saying the truth. It's that they're actually saying these guys are big, so we can't do it. Right. And that's why they were and that's why they were killed. Because Joshua doesn't deny it. Caleb doesn't deny it. And those guys are righteous men. Right. They don't deny that there's giants. They say, yeah, but we can do it. We can kill them because God says we could. So I think the context is clearly uh, that the report is true. Um, and, and again, this is context. If This is part of the problem. This is part of the, mod- the modernist problem of modernist Christians imposing this... Uh, rationalistic, you know, paradigm on interpreting the Bible because we, you're not, it's really dangerous to um, tear apart words like, like you put them under a microscope and you t- because there's all kinds of exegetical fallacies and, and you know, even D.A. Carson has mentioned, had written a whole book on exegetical fallacies that Christians do where you analyze a single word and you, you're analyzing it like it's scientific 
And there's some value, of course. There's some lexical value. There's some value to the lexical meaning of a word. But there's re- it's really not as much as we think there is because the context and the sentence is the primary. In terms of linguistic interpretation, the context and the and the sentence is actually of more primary value than the word is. We tend to think, well, break it down. Paragraph, sentence, word, right? No, that's the primary meaning is the sentence because it's the sentence that brings the context to the individual words, which is why you can have the same exact word being figurative in one sentence and not figurative in another. And the only way you know that is because of the whole sentence, not the word. So this is why it's dangerous to just focus on, oh, well, the word could mean slander in, a, in another context. Yeah, but if you read the context here, Clearly, Joshua and Caleb are agreeing with them. So that, this is another one of these elements where um, we need to read the genre of the literature and the context as of, of higher priority than the lexical meaning of the words. And I think that that bears itself up on, in, in, a, in, a, in, the, in the most proper hermeneutic. Yeah, that's very well put. And, you know, I was reading through numbers and there was another part where I think there was some some laws of purification, and there was you know different things that were that had to be done, and it was very you know it, you look at it and it seems very religious in the modern sense, and you know you have to do this if you touch someone you have to go outside the camps and you know you have to do all this stuff and and it's, yeah. it, it with the paradigm of of understanding that maybe there was like you know a genetic contamination going on it really opens your eyes to like oh you know there's probably a good reason God wanted to go th- or wanted the Israelites to really you know, be very serious about this stuff of, of you know, if you touch something or, or do something in, in the way that can potentially uh, harm you or others with sort of, I guess, a tainted bloodline, if you will. Um, it, it just kind of blew my mind because I was like, oh, I never saw it that way. So I'm sure there's a lot of them, you know, a lot of gems like that in the in the Old Testament, especially that we just sure. haven't uh, dug up yet. But, you know, shifting shifting a little bit, I know you're not uh, you're not much of a prophecy guy. Uh, but I do yeah. want to bring up because we do live in some very interesting times today, and yeah. you know, part of Canary Cry Radio, we we discuss you know transhumanism, technocracy, scientism, and the pursuit of godhood, right? Which is sort of a, yes. a theme that you tackle as well. Uh, yeah. But um, Jesus did tell us that as in the days of Noah, so it shall be in the coming of the Son of Man. And and I feel like the the first century audience there that actually heard those words spoken by Jesus kind of you know knew like, oh, we're talking about the sons of God mating with, with human women, the Nephilim, but then after post-flood, you know, because Noah lived 350 years after the flood, we're talking about, you know, Nimrod, uh, Giborim, and the Tower mm-hmm. of Babel and things like that. So w- what do you think, if anything, is happening now that could reflect on some of the things that may have been happening uh, back in Noah's day? Yeah, I, you know, I actually, I, I try to keep up a little bit with some of that, some of that material, and yeah, you're right. I'm, I'm more interested right now in focusing on understanding the ancient context and getting that storyline down. And of course, until I finish my novels, I'm focusing on that. Right. Um, how does it apply to the modern day and to the future prophecy? Uh, I do have some different ideas about prophecy anyway, but um, I, I actually find a lot of the material that I've read to be actually fascinating and interesting and worthy of, and, and it, it's causing me to think about things. And so I'm open is what I'm saying. And I do think, you know, some of these claims like, you know, the whole, um, I mean, I've done documentaries myself on, on um, stem cell research and, you know, the, the hybridization and such. Mm-hmm. And I definitely see the, the uh, incredible dangers going on there. And I do see in the, in the ancient text 
this strict emphasis on, you know, after their own kind, this right. wasn't an anti, this, there's another case. It's not anti-evolution. It's not talking, oh, see, you know, it, it's basically talking, there's something about um, separation, separation that's going throughout all the text. God separating the land from the water, separating male from female, keeping uh, the, the separation of, of, of the species and all that kind of stuff. It's this stress on holiness and separation, and that's why the heavenly-earthly divide being uh, shattered by having angels uniting with humans is a violation of that. I, I actually consider that to be the case, uh, and, and I do respect a lot of the points that people are bringing up that, well, what we're doing today is a viol- seems to be an apparent violation of that um, you know, separation kind of mindset, you know? Right. And so I, d- I do find a lot of that interesting. Where I, where I take my final stand on it, I'm not sure because I haven't had enough to really study it. Uh, but I think that there's a lot, there's a lot to that. There's a lot to the, the dangers of, of this, you know, of splicing in genes with, of, of, you know, horses or cows or spiders with humans in order to get these special traits. And they're actually getting closer and closer to being able to do that kind of stuff. And, and um, so, yeah, I, I think that there is a lesson for today in the ancient text. And I, I, even in, even in my, my novel series, I try to bring some of that genetic um, manipulation into that text so that people who, who do actually believe that there's an end times Nephilim scenario would actually really appreciate the stories because I think that the, there's enough in there for them to draw from as well because I think that theologically there is a connection. Right. Is there one literally in terms of what's going to happen in the prophecy? I don't know. You know I, don't, I'm, I don't suspect so. But I still do think that mankind is evil and uh and then will come up with all kinds of evil ways to try to uh hurt control and destroy other people and so i'm on the side of the guys who are warning us that uh all this genetic manipulation that's going on today is a reflection of the violation of the genetic separation in the ancient world i i'm i'm on their side theologically right uh, yeah and that I- makes any sense yeah, definitely. And I think, I actually think the, the, because what's happened to me recently, and I've, I recently did my first public speaking uh, a week and a half ago, and, you know, it was a lot of fun to put together a PowerPoint and things like that. But what I'm discovering is as I look more at what we're doing today and where we're headed, uh, as far as um, some of these guys who are transhumanist, uh, pro, you know, post-human sort of, you know, all these views that they have about more yeah. more outlandish stuff like, you know, uploading your consciousness onto a computer yeah. and all this stuff. Yeah. When you look at that, it, it actually has pointed me back to the ancient times, to, you know, where yeah. mythologies come from. Uh, because I yeah. feel like you get a better grasp of what's going on today if you get a better grasp of uh, what may have been going on in the past. So is there any evidence that you find in the ancient text, not just the the Bible, but, you know, all the other... Uh, ancient texts that we we uh, that we have available, and a lot of them that we've you know that that have come to surface in the last century. It hasn't really been that long since we've uncovered some of these. But um, do you see any evidence of some kind of ancient technology that is uh, part of uh, you know maybe not in technology in the sense that we would understand it of you know uh, you know electricity and the in batteries and I don't know just gas you know and things exploding yeah but but maybe in a different sense a different way that they were able to harness energy and maybe you know use that to create portals and things like i mean i'm you know getting pretty speculative here but but is there a 
is there any evidence of that that you found in your research and and also how did that influence uh your the chronicles of nephilim yeah well i you know here my basic interpretation is i do believe the, in the generally in the enochian interpretation of the watchers and uh what that is is i'm sure most of your listeners already know is that the, there's a famous book of first enoch that uh all throughout church history has garnered great respect and belief um, from the church, um, and um, so it, it, it has a lot of respect. It's not considered scripture, but it's nevertheless quoted and paraphrased within scripture, which means that the scripture uses it as a reference, so therefore there's got to be legitimacy to it if that's the case. Right, right. You know? And uh, so because of that, I, I place a lot of trust in it, but I don't think it's ultimately, I, I, you know, I don't think it's ultimately true like the Bible is, but in that in that text, it does talk about how these watchers who came fell to earth, and they were the ones that taught occultic secrets to mankind. That's I do believe that 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 there's a possibility there because, and it makes sense to me that if these sons of God, if these heavenly beings came to earth, well, their knowledge would be so superior to ours that that yeah, they they would they would probably have the ability to to bring in a primitive form of science as we know it and even engage in some genetic experimentation. I actually believe that that's entirely possible, um, and, and it may have actually occurred. Uh, how they did it, I don't know, um, but I think it's definitely a possibility because why couldn't they? If they were revealing all these kind of dark secrets, why couldn't they reveal knowledge that's ahead of its time? Because they would be way far ahead of their time anyway. Right. And, um, you know, and, and I think that that's important because you know, we know that there's this whole huge subculture, and it's growing, in the secular atheistic worldview that believes that you know religion is is ancient man's ignorant reaction to ancient astronauts and ancient aliens visiting right. and now and now of course i mean it's a growing field where even scientists are starting to believe this baloney right. and it's it's just so amazing i mean i remember back in the 70s when i read chariots of the gods i read that when it when it first came out in the 70s i was a young kid and that stuff it, it, you know, it was just goofy, but it was f fun and fascinating. And now, respectable scientists and academics are actually believing that stuff. And so, so, and and they say Christians believe fairy tales. Good grief! But anyway, the point <laughs> here is, is that nevertheless, it it is one of their ways of trying to cope with some of these apparently, um, you know, advanced forms of technology or operations. Now, I, I'm actually in the camp of of um, Chris Chris White, you know, have you have you yes. seen his material? Yes, of I'm his, I'm in his camp where he basically deconstructs ancient aliens, and he really does show that a lot of what we think is uh, how they could never have done this, they actually could. Yeah, they, right. they 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 we we could build the pyramids, and you know there is there literally is a rock huger than the trilithons in Baalbek that was moved in the 17th century. Right, right. So, but, so sorry, but, uh, however, we don't know how they did it, which means that we did lose their understanding. We had to, you know, spend many years trying to figure this out. And I do think that they probably had a lot more, you know, I don't know that, Time. I don't know that they had, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I don't know that they had, I don't know if the Baghdad battery is real. I, I doubt, I doubt some of that stuff, but I still think that it's possible that they had much more advancement of technology than we may realize. Right. So I'm, I, I'm, I'm okay with that stuff, but I do think a lot of the premier examples have been debunked yeah. pretty satisfactorily to my mindset. 
Um, but I still think, yeah, I still think that we we sell the ancients short. And again, this comes back to our modernist. Basically, it's in cultural imperialism. Right. We think, and and this comes from the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment had a prejudiced view that interpreted. Uh, religion was ignorant, therefore whatever ancient man believed come, came from ignorant mindset, and science was the great freer of our of knowledge and freedom of man. Therefore, anything before us was called the Dark Ages. Right. And it's this whole bigoted prejudice presuppositions that have no foundation, And but we think that way, so we've adopted that even implicitly, even as Christians who rejects the Enlightenment – we still picked up a lot of that thinking, and we tend to look upon the ancients as if they are a lot stupider than, than, than they are. And, right. and this is where a lot of the biblical criticism is just so ridiculous to me in my mindset, because these guys are tearing apart the Bible, trying to say, oh, look at all this, this redactor contradicts himself, and this and that, and therefore he, as if, as if these guys were idiots and they didn't know that they were putting together sentences that apparently looked contradictory. <laughs> well, maybe... Maybe they're not so stupid, right. and there's a re- uh, there's a, a poetic or imaginative reason why they're doing it. And let's figure out what that is, you know. Right. So yeah, this kind of stuff goes on all the time, and I'm I, I kind of it's sort of like the more you get into the ancient mindset, the more you really start to see how stupid we are. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm serious, you know. And and it's just like because we are so ignorant and so prejud- so imperialistic with our own mindset that we can't see through another person's eyes. And, uh, yeah, so that's, it's really quite a, quite a fascinating, fascinating journey. Yeah. And, and I think, um, in part two of Age of Deceit that I'm working on now, I'm really looking at science and technology and where it's headed and stuff. And I know Tom Horn's sort of the leading, uh, expert on transhumanism and, and I haven't had a chance to look at his, mm-hmm. uh, his new documentary that he did on that. But, uh, when I, when I brought up ancient technology, I, I apologize for not being a little bit more specific because I, I too believe, you know, uh, as far as Chris White, you know, I think he did a good job showing, you know, just debunking all that stuff, the, the ridiculousness of a lot of the, uh, yeah. the, the things that the ancient astronaut theories hold on a lot of the megalithic sites and things of that nature. But when, yeah. I, when I was saying ancient technology, what I was more referring to was, uh, I guess it, to me, it's almost technology, like when I say ancient technology, I, it's synonymous to uh magic or enchantments or uh some oh. something you know more more fantastic than we might think you know because when i looked at some of the things and how it came down it seems like and i and i you know i traverse in the uh, looking at secret societies and things like that and i know that's not your thing but but you do find that you know when in, in the occult they look at someone like cain for example as you know the forgotten father and uh, he's the one that received sacred knowledge somehow, and that sacred yeah. knowledge was passed down, and you know, in the secret circles, and blah blah blah. Oh so, yeah, yeah. So, so there's sort of this, this, uh, and, and what I, f- what I find interesting is that science, the pursuit of of modern science, even if it's if it is materialistic, you know, in its foundation, yes. is is the same. Is it's the same thing. It's it's the same goal as what was uh, the primal lie, is what I call it. Um, th- that we, you know, that the serpent gives in uh, in Genesis three. Uh, and so, you know, I, I guess it's more along those lines. And and you know, perhaps the reason why I wanted to relate it to the Tower of Babel is because, you know, something happened at Babel, and God was like, uh, "No, that's not going to happen." You know? 
Yeah, so yeah. What are, no, what are your thoughts you on know that? what? I, I actually do agree with you on that, and I do think that there is a some kind of a, a theme, a meme, a thread, a connection, a spiritual connection that does go uh, to these modern day occultic practices, and 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 there's no surprise that they're connected back to Cain, and and of course Lucifer, even like yeah, they worship. You know, and we're not talking about Satanists. We're talking about you know uh, a people who dedicate their. Wait, wait, who's the famous guy who dedicated his book to Lucifer? My point was was that that um, I do believe there's a connection there and and here's here's something that that my 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 novel series create i i bring a novel interpretation and and what it what it is is this i say what if you know like in the ancient world in the chronicles of nephilim I, I i bring this twist and i say what if we in the ancient world all the different cities of mesopotamia for example had different gods that they worshiped right and these gods were were part of a pantheon and they also had a whole theory of how the Pantheon worked together as a bureaucracy and all this. And I thought, what if the god, gods of the ancient world – well, actually, let me take, say one more thing. In the Old Testament, there are several passages. Uh, not only does God talk about the sons of God as Elohim or as gods at time, and these right. fallen ones are also those gods, but there are passages where God indicates – uh, this is another one of my sloughing off of my modernist Christian evangelicalism that uh, interpretation then that thinks the Bible only says there's just one God and everything else are non-existent, so they're all fantasies. Well, right, I began yeah. I be as I read the text in their ancient mindset, I'm starting to see more realistically that yes, I believe that there's one living God, but. The Bible talks about other gods in a much more realistic way than we do. We just assume that they're all fake. It's all superstition. It's all superstition because that's our modern mindset. Right. But if you read the text in its context, I don't think that comes across that way. For example, there are several passages where it indicates not only are there passages that talk about goat demons in, in the desert and all this kind of stuff, you know, that is that is really wild. And we could, you know, there's a lot of of theological connection there but there are passages that talk about like um in in deuteronomy and numbers where it says that for instance that the moses is talking he says that the 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 gods to which they these pagans sacrifice are demons all right and we also know that even in the new testament there's references like that where paul says that you know these pagans pagan gods are demons right 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 and so there's this sense that there's a demonic reality going on behind these pagan gods, right? And, you know, that's not to say that they're all that way, but nonetheless, that there's a spiritual reality behind these, these gods. What is that? So I said, what if the gods of the ancient world were real beings with supernatural powers, just like how we hear about their myths and stories, okay? But they, it's not that they were these real gods, but they were these fallen watchers, who were supernatural that we believe are supernatural, and they were masquerading as gods in order to draw away worship from the living God unto themselves. So they, you know, they they took on the identities of these pantheons and they created all these religions and all this kind of stuff, and that's what man was worshiping. That, and that's the premise of Chronicles of the Nephilim because you see these gods as real beings, and they're called gods because that's how people see them. Uh, and yeah, they're not like the living God, but there are a kind of God that people worship with supernatural powers, right? And so you see in Chronicles of Nephilim, the gods of the pantheon are real beings and they're interacting. They've got their own plans and they're trying to do things. And so what I'm doing is I'm sort of integrating in 
I'm doing what the Bible does, actually. I'm telling what I think is the true theological storyline. Um, you know, I use fantasy, and I, I take some imaginative um, liberties, you know. And, um, but I'm, I'm trying to explain the, the truth, spiritual reality behind the pagan religions as well as the Christian religion. How did, how did they all work? How did these people have different beliefs than what we have, right? And I sort of tell a story that explains where their myths came from spiritually. And, um, and that, that's one of the, the goals of that. And so in the course of doing that, I actually bring in a lot of biblical characters such as Leviathan and Rahab that if you study them, you realize that these also are ancient Near Eastern common um, mythological creatures, like, for instance, Leviathan or Rahab. They are sea dragons. Leviathan has many heads. In the Bible, in the book of Psalms, it says he has many heads, and which just happens to be seven heads of Leviathan that we read about in Canaan. So there, everybody believe, used this notion of Leviathan or the sea dragon, and they all used it in the same way. They didn't use it as if it was literally true, but they used it as a theological expression of chaos. So when, when they wanted to say that their God pushed back the chaos of the world to create the order that is their religious system, right? they would say that the God conquered the sea dragon. Well, guess what? Yes, Genesis 1 has complete absence of that. Well, not complete absence. He is described, the sea dragons described as one of the creatures of the deep. But um, in other chapters in, in, in the Psalms, there is the description of God conquering the sea dragon to establish his power and authority and his covenant. So it's a covenantal language that uses the sea dragon as a theological uh, theme. So... And all the ancient Near Eastern language, uh, cultures did this. So what I do in the Chronicles of the Nephilim is, I, and I do what the Bible does. Because if you read, look up in your concordance, you read the passages on Leviathan, whether it's in Job or in Deuteronomy or what have you, you'll see that, for instance, um, you know, in Numbers or Deuteronomy, where it talks about, um, I think it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, Moses' song, the song of Moses after they cross the, 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 the Red Sea and, and out of the Exodus. And it talks about the historical event of the crossing of the Red Sea, but it uses a lot of mythopoetic language of the sea dragon, right? And so does that mean the Bible's mythological and not historical? No, it's not either or. It's actually talking about a historical event, but using mythopoetic or poetic language to communicate the theological truth. What's the theological truth? The truth is when God was bringing his people out of Egypt into the promised land, getting ready to prepare them, he was suppressing the chaos of the pagan world around them, and he was preparing the land for him to establish his covenantal order of Israel. And, and so, therefore, it describes God you know, crushing the heads of Leviathan, right? That's the whole point of what's going on. So I bring that stuff into the Chronicles of the Nephilim, and I do the same thing that the Bible does, only you're seeing it literally happening. So that's, you know, that's, that's one of, one of the ways that I do that. But I, I, I think I got off of, on a tangent that was... Um, that's okay. Yeah. Tangents are great. Those are okay. expected and, and revered on this show, so yeah. <laughs> no but, problem. But yeah, so, so this ancient, uh, the ancient technology or the ancient revelation, I do believe that the Bible 
uh, that that kind of stuff was going on, and the Enochian version is that the uh, fallen sons of God actually revealed occultic knowledge to mankind. And right. uh, now I don't think that it's all entirely true because it talks about they showed the makeup, women makeup. Right. Well. Right. I don't think makeup's evil, okay? So, but I, yeah. but I do know that when, when you know, the writers of the Book of Enoch were probably around the time of the Maccabees, and in that time period, the the uh, um, the Jewish world was very Hellenized, and so they were trying to make another separation and saying, mm. you know, all this they were stressing holiness, and so, so I think that there's this notion of you know wanting to separate themselves. Um, and so they refer to all kinds of stuff that was going on in their time period and stuff. So I, I do think that there's uh, some exaggeration in Enoch, but I think the principle's still the same that happened, and that is, yeah, they revealed these occultic secrets, which probably was some kind included some kind of of uh, genetic crossbreeding. How they did it, who who has any idea? I have no idea. <laughs> right. I simply yeah. don't. Yeah, and you bring up something interesting with um, what was the last you had mentioned something. I don't believe. Oh, the makeup, the, the makeup, makeup, the makeup. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I actually, you know, I, I know that, that verse in, in Enoch, I think it's chapter eight, that where it goes through the names of the fallen angels, the watchers, and, and what they taught. Yeah. And you bring up an interesting point because, you know, when I, when I looked at that, I hadn't considered what you just mentioned there, but it seemed to me that to make sense in some regard, because, you know, you think about the sons of God who came down in Genesis six and they were tempted because, you know, the women were beautiful it seems like maybe they were dressing them up beforehand and then, you know, they were tempted because they were dressed up, you know, in the way that the fallen angels wanted them to look and stuff. But yeah. at the same time, um, what's more compelling for me is that uh, when you look at the line of Cain and you get to Lamech, and this is not the same Lamech from the Messianic line, but right. Lamech had two wives and, and those two wives, I don't have it in front of me, but they their names basically uh, reflected, you know, objectifying, you know, yourself. So oh, objectifying yeah. the, the female. And, and so it kind of stems back and I kind of think, well, it's possible, you know, that these watchers taught makeup and not to, again, not to say makeup is evil, but it was just a way to sort of, you know, make the mindset of man, uh, very man centered and not so sure. godly. Sure. And, and of course that's the plan, um, of the fallen one to begin with. But, you know, a, a couple more quick questions here, because I, there's a, you know, I'm skimming through your book and I, I haven't been able to read the whole thing, but you brought up um, an interesting thing that, that we've touched on a little bit, uh, but if you can dive into a little more, the use of, of the language in the ancient text, and you brought up sarcasm and, you know, like humor and things like that. And we, I, I believe we miss a lot of that yeah. in, you know, just our modern uh, rendering and, and maybe even some in the translation. But what have you found as far as sarcasm? I feel like that's a hard one to detect uh, if you don't really know the the context of where where uh, the uh, ancient Near East uh, writers were coming from, so is, can you kind of give us a little insight on that and perhaps a couple examples? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, again, it's funny. This is another example of our of our cultural imperialism of modernism. When we think that we're such a sarcastic, cynical culture, right, and we think that that's a form of sophistication or sophistication, right? <laughs> but you know, I mean, cause really that's what it is, you know, and there is a sense of where it is a sophistication, but really a lot of sarcasm degenerates into cynicism, which really isn't sophistication. Right. It's just hopelessness, despair, and meaninglessness, and they don't recognize it. But anyway, <laughs> we tend to think that, oh, ancient world didn't have our kind of humor because they weren't 
as sophisticated as we were. <laughs> so for us to really, you know, so it's like if, if you read a book or watch a movie where you see ancient man and they s crack a sarcastic joke and you're going, oh, that, that seems too modern. That's not ancient. Well, no, you, you dummy. They, were, <laughs> they had sarcasm too. All you have to do is read any of the Greek plays, you know, and, and Clouds by, by Aristophanes. and they're, they're full of sarcasm, right? So sarcasm was... Look, I, I re, I've studied the Epic of Gilgamesh, and there's sarcasm in Gilgamesh. So we're not as sophisticated as we think we are. And, uh, and they're a lot more sophisticated than we thought they were. Um, but yeah, uh, but some of the examples in the Bible, were, a lot of the, where the, the sarcasm comes actually is, and, and this is another thing that, that, again, does not hit our evangelical minds with a very, uh, um, with happiness, and that is that these ancient worlds, and, and actually I get back to Nimrod, I think that's, a, that's another, that's a good case of it. But the names, a lot of times the names of people, places, and gods that, that are referred to in the scripture are, are actually thought by some scholars, and they make, they make some very strong arguments that prove that the names are not the literal names because they're, they're, um, they're sort of polemically derived names. And, and, and sometimes it's explicit, like in the case of Babel, right? Where it says it was called Babylon, which means gateway of the gods. Right. And, 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 but God, the whole thing of Babel is, you know, is a, a very mocking text. It's a, it's a wonderful study of, of mockery and sarcasm because it talks about how man thinks he's so great that he's going to build a tower to the heavens. Well, it, it, Again, the ancient context doesn't mean he's trying to build a super high tower, but what it does mean is it's, it's the notion of pride in thinking they can build a tower that has a religious ability to connect heaven and earth spiritually. So it's actually got an occultic meaning behind it. Right. And, and, but there's still that, you know, again, it's a figurative way of saying we're becoming spiritually big and proud is we're building a tower to the heavens. And then God says, well, let me go down and see what they're doing. Well, that's sarcasm. It's like saying, <laughs> I think they're so tall. Well, I think I'll step down and see where they're at, you know. And But the, the, the name Babel, it says that it was, you know, they called the place Babel, which means, you know, confusion, because that's where the, the confusion of tongues happened, because God said, okay, you're going to try to be unified in evil. Well, I'm going to split you apart and give you different tongues. And that's what spread man across the earth, right? And so, so it calls it Babel. So the, the play on words is gateway of the gods, Babylon to confusion of tongues, which is Babel. And that's a very derogatory way. So, so I, the Jews called it Babel, but I don't think that that's what they called it was Babel. Right. And guess what? The name Nimrod actually mean, and I've done a study on this because Nimrod shows up in my book, uh, Abraham Allegiant, the new book. And I take, I follow the sort of the ancient Jewish traditional interpretation of that, which I don't necessarily, you know, I don't know, I don't know that it's true or not, but it's, it's a tradition that I respect and, I, and I, it's a very good story. And that is that Nimrod did build the Tower of Babel and uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and actually he was around during the time of Abraham and Abraham actually interacted with him. And so I tell that story in my Abraham Allegiant as well. But if you look at the biblical text though, the word Nimrod and you study the passage and you find that Nimrod probably probably means to rebel right. and you know uh, who 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 calls themselves 
by a negative name. Villains don't call themselves by villains' <laughs> names, right? Right, right. So, and scholars have done a study on that that indicates if you look at that section of Babel and it talks about Nimrod, or, or if you look at the se section on Nimrod where it talks about how he was, the start of his kingdom was, uh, I, I don't have the text with me. Let, let, let me oh, find it. Uh, that's Genesis. What was that? 11. 10, 11. I think it's 11, yeah. Or no, actually, um, Genesis 10 is what it talks about, uh, Nimrod. And, you know, it says, there's all kinds of stuff we can go into the passage, but basically it says the beginning of, of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. And from there he went into Assyria, Assyria and built Nineveh. Well, if you look at it, those all those cities happen to be the key cities of the historical progression of history from that lasts about a thousand years you know uh babel was was first the early leading of culture and then eric and then akkad but akkad and and then nineveh nineveh didn't come till way later and um and assyria didn't come till way later assyria you know he didn't start all those at the same time but if you look at it assyria from babel to eric to akkad to Assyria, the kingdom of Akkad, to the kingdom of Assyria, to Nineveh, that's about a thousand years. So he obviously didn't live a thousand years. So some scholars have shown that basically Nimrod is sort of a archetypal villain, which, you know, during the time of the exile, Babel, Babylon was considered the ultimate enemy of evil. And so if they wanted to describe, they wanted to link that historically. They, that's what they were doing and they were saying that and Nimrod was rebel and Nimrod is the mighty hunter before the Lord and that was a in Mesopotamia ancient Mesopotamia all the kings were usually depicted as mighty hunters uh, holding the two lions on each hand and this kind right. of it was a so in other words this is a generic reference to the kingdom of Mesopotamia as being a rebellious entity against God and the whole history of it's a it's a it's sort of a symbolic synopsis of the history of Mesopotamia. Now, I'm not saying this is the absolute interpretation. It, I may be wrong, but a lot of scholars have shown that this is probably the case. So, th but this is not the only place where, where, they, where they name Nimrod as to rebel, and therefore they're saying basically Babylon and ancient Mesopotamia were wayward against God and they're evil. And the kings tried to, you know, and you look at Mesopotamia and they have all these towers and all these cities and they're all pagans. And it's kind of linking that to this storyline of, of evil. But that's not the only place. If you look at places like in, in some of the Old Testament texts, it talks about Beelzebul. And, mm. and, and there's different name, there's different ways of spelling it. Well, the, 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 in the ancient Canaanite texts it's it's spelled differently and it's spelled to to mean that it means prince or lord you know basil ball but in the book of kings it says basil bob mm. and and what they think is they took you know the, the hebrew is a consonantal language and and so was ugaritic and so was canaanite language and they they took the consonants of Beazelbol, and they put the um, um, what's the opposite of consonants? <laughs> uh, I'm not a very good language scholar. Vowels. Vowels. <laughs> they took the vowels of the word Bosheth, which means shame, and they put those vowels in it 
so that comes out Beazelbob. Mm. Beazelbob. All right. So there's basically they're mocking Beazelbob and calling it shameful. See what I'm saying? So there's there's a mm. very sarcastic, uh, and they did that with the name Jezebel. The word Jezebel, if you look at the ancient text entire, the reference to Je- Jezebel is it's a it's a it's a ball like Isabel, but they call him Jezebel, and that actually word means it actually brings a play in on the word dung, <laughs> you know. Right, so right. Je- Jezebel will be in the f- uh, field of dung, uh, <laughs> so they were calling Isabel Jezebel. So the way that Hebrews even make references to kings is not the literal names, but oftentimes they are sarcastic or polemical references to, as well as the gods and to kings that are pagan. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, 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 you know, it seems like if we, if we keep that in mind and we, uh, we actually, you know, if there is a, a translation that might come along in the future that sort of takes these things into account, you know, there may be a lot of, uh, profanity <laughs> yes. in, in, in our modern, uh, interpretation of some of these things like like dung for example um just one last question and again this is sort of i have to go here just because this is where my mind is at and looking at uh the future and where we're at now but you you really do seem to point out that there is uh obviously a spiritual element to this idea of perhaps you know science in in a sense of an ancient sense yeah. It was very much, you know, hand in hand science uh, as far as understanding the mechanical workings, uh, but also the spiritual sort of undercurrent that connected all that together. And that has obviously sort of been separated in the last, uh, I guess, 150, 200 years or so. But it seems like what, what I'm starting to find is that more and more people in the sciences are starting to talk about how they have to revisit this idea of a reductionist view Mm-hmm. And they have to start incorporating some of these metaphysical possibilities uh, as part of the scientific, uh, you know, still within the scientific construct. Yeah. And, you know, there's there's one man who's named uh, Carter Phipps, who's uh, he wrote a book called Evolutionaries Unlocking the Spiritual and Cultural Potential of Science's Greatest Idea. And he basically said, we're witnessing the birth of an authentic new spiritual and philosophical worldview and that this worldview uh, was science-friendly and, and you know, placed questions of human purpose and meaning fully in the context of the evolutionary cosmos, and he goes on. But I, I, it's just alarming to me that uh, you know, the church in general doesn't really look at... I mean, we're already behind, right? I mean, we're yeah. already sort of playing catch-up on a lot of issues. Yeah. And, and here we are, you know, a lot of... There's a leading biologist saying, you know, the 10 problems with materialism, you know, and, and things like yeah. that. There's, they're starting to understand and get the idea like hey this materialistic reductionist view is kind of bankrupt there's not really an answer there. yes you have to incorporate these other things and so uh, my concern i guess is that the the modern church we've done a great job answering to the these atheistic sort of worldviews but as they start moving into the spiritual realm a lot of it is sort of new agey yeah and uh you know sort of sort of pantheistic if you will but uh, do you see the possibility of uh, books like yours and your work being able to address some of these things as far as, you know, I don't know. I don't know exactly how it might happen, but do you think that the, your work of fiction yes. can draw interests and, and actually, you know, how do you, how do you actually incorporate or inspire yes. the, your readers to pursue, uh, you know, this sort of understanding Yes. scripture and not be afraid of, of uh, some of these things coming down the pike. Yes, yes, very good question. And, you know, is oh, isn't it interesting how 
once mankind uh, starts to recognize maybe materialism isn't right and there is a spiritual side to science, strange how they don't end up turning back to Christianity, but they come up with a monistic or Eastern worldview that has to be the... <laughs> yes. the in other words, any religion but, but the truth, any religion right. but Christianity. And, it, and that's the same case with philosophy and history and everything. They always, when they start to admit that maybe they're st part wrong, they never return to, to, oh, maybe Christianity's right. It's always another godless religion because, right. because that's, that's the nature of man. They're, sin they're sinful and, and such. So I, I expect that. But you know what? It's interesting you say that because I actually do believe believe as much as my books are are part of the fantasy genre and they're novels and they're just they're like they're written like watching a movie because that's my intent is i want them to be entertaining right. and and i just can't be bored i can't stand being bored so i write <laughs> them to be like entertaining and 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 some you know you're watching it like you're you're reading it like you're watching a movie okay but ironically you know, this is the stuff that people love to read. I'm selling far more books of that than I am of my other books, which are more theological, uh, that try to explain it all theologically from the Bib from the Bible. So I, I actually do believe that, like like I was saying earlier, the Bible communicates theological truth mostly through story, and so I'm going to do that. And people are going to pick it up osmotically or through osmosis. The more that they read the worldview, put through put through an entertaining lens, I actually think it's going to help them to see the world more correctly in terms of spiritually and scientifically unified, uh, but under a Christian worldview. Uh, so, for example, I, th I make the claim that my books, my novel series, is the antidote to the ancient aliens worldview. Well, I don't hmm. actually attack it in any way at all, but... Right. Uh, you know, and they're, in a sense, I don't even address it, and I don't address it in my appendixes either. In my appendixes, that's another, well, I'll get to that in a second, but basically, my point is, is but the fact is, is I explain the ancient uh, wisdom and the ancient notion of religions. I give my explanation of, of, of these beings that have visited the planet. Uh, I give it the explanation as being, you know, angels and as spiritual beings. And that's exactly what the alien, ancient astronauts are trying to debunk or trying to get rid of. Well, I do the opposite. I tell the stories that uh, support the spiritual interpretation, and it makes sense, and it it's because it's rich and biblical and theological. I bring in a lot of ancient historical research. I bring, bring in a lot of, you know, nothing that happens in any of my novels is completely made up by me. I'm not very original. I've just read a lot of ancient texts and mm. brought in their ideas and integrated it all together under the lordship of Aslan. In other words, my fantasy <laughs> is ultimately under the lordship of the Bible, of God in the Bible. So I use all these ancient pagan mythologies, which is what the Bible does. I use the mythologies and I redefine them within my new context. Well, that's what everybody does, but we just don't know it. So yes, that's I've decided that that's the most effective means for me, at least, to really uh, affect the world. But but I'm also, I'm a right brain, left brain person because I love the intellectual stuff. And whenever I, one of the things I always loved about Michael Crichton was his novels. Mm. He'd tell these great stories and at the end he'd have appendix explaining the real science behind the fiction, right? Yes, right? yes, yes yeah. So I decided I'm going to do that with mine only. I'm going to explain the real biblical and historical research behind the, the fiction in my novels. And so all of my books have... Uh, sometimes as much as 70 to 100 pages of appendixes of the theological, historical, and biblical backgrounds to all the stuff that I'm writing because I'm not, like I said, I'm not making up a lot of it. I'm just, I'm, my talent is in being able to call from all the different sources and 
put it all together and make it work. And uh, and that's that's what my talent is. And and so, in a way, my novels are sort of have a little bit for the left brain, a little bit for the right brain. So um, I think that it can appeal to to many different um, many different uh, approaches, you know. But the the bottom line is, is if you don't tell a great story, in fact, I you know, N.T. Wright has said this in quoting some other people, where he says, you know, basically the person who tells the best story is the one who wins the culture. And, and that's what I want to do is tell great stories, but have them rooted in strong biblical theology. And, uh, and that's what I do. But yet, interestingly, I'm not one of those writers who tries to f- make things into spiritual lessons and, you know, make it a Christian novel. I don't, <laughs> I don't really do that. I just, look, God's in my story because I'm taking it from the Bible. Okay. So I'm, but I'm not trying to write, uh, impose my Christian message on it. I'm just telling a story that's germane and sticks to the original material and the original tradition and heritage that it comes from. So, um, that's, that's kind of how I approach it. Yeah, that's, that's great. And and you sort of uh, led me into the next question that I had, which is kind of a wrap up, but do you actually have a gospel narrative or some sort of, um, I guess your take uh, for a redemption type yes. of character and, 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 and that whole part, you know, obviously the, the new Testament theology is worked into the storyline. You know, I, I actually, I actually do, but it's very germane to it. Um, uh, and it's basically, you know, the, the overarching thread of the series is the war of the seed of the serpent against the seed of Eve. And that goes back to the proto evangelion, which is in mm-hmm. Genesis three, where, uh, God says, I will put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And I believe that that really was, but also don't forget the apostle Paul way, way later in the book of uh, Galatians, he says, you know, uh, um, he's referring to Abraham's promise. But the point right. is, is God said, I will give this land to your seed. Well, he, he says that seed is singular, n- not plural. The seed is Christ. Well, technically it isn't. It is, it is plural, but God is bringing a double meaning to the text when he says, when God was promising to the seed, he was promising that he would give the inheritance of all things to Christ. And then if we are in Christ, we will inherit, see? And so I take that back further and say, well, then when he's saying the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, there's, there's, there's a hint of the messianic promise. So my whole storyline is that the seed, the, these two seed of peoples that are based on faith or religion but also there's some genetic element to it and how that interplays it's not always clear but it's basically the storyline of these two fighting for uh for power and control and um but that seed that god promises is not always referred to in the plural as in the people of God, but as a hint that there's a coming king. Mm-hmm. Uh, but interestingly, I think that Old Testament-wise, most of that is referring to David, the King David, and how, and the ultimately the King David would, would clear the land. But then King David is the ultimate archetype that points to Christ. Mm-hmm. So Christ does ultimately, he is the ultimate fulfillment, but how much I bring into the New Testament, um, I don't bring as I don't I bring in as much as the Old Testament does, which is not a lot. Uh, it's right. all hinted at and referenced. It's messianic, but mm-hmm. it's not always clear. However, I, I I have to pull back and and have a caveat there because I do 
bring in the Son of Man. In the book, in, in the Enoch Primordial, uh, there's, I won't go into the details, but there is, as we know, in, in, the, in the Old Testament, there are references to the Son of Man and Daniel coming up to the Ancient of Days, and I think that that's a reference to Christ, actually, um, and Christ in heaven and such. And so I do have this Son of Man. I don't call him Jesus, but I call him the Son of Man like the Old Testament does, but it's clearly He's clearly Christ. And in the heavenly council, in the divine council in heaven, which is we read about in Job, this isn't, I didn't, I didn't make this up. This is in Job. This is in the Bible. God has a heavenly council with all of his sons of God, and the Son of Man is there as well. And it's like a, it's a legal courtroom, actually. And I, in the book, in my Enoch, my primordial, I actually have a court case going on where, where the Satan or the adversary, um, engages in a lawsuit against God by saying God's covenant with Adam is an unjust in all these five points. Um, <laughs> and, and the five points follow the, the points of the ancient Near Eastern Hittite covenant treaty, which I think is in, in the Old Testament. And Satan, basically, he just makes all these arguments against God. And so uh, Enoch and the Son of Man are the defense attorneys, and they counter all the arguments of the Satan. And so I do have some, I actually, now that I'm, I'm remembering this as we're talking, and I do actually bring a little bit of, the, the, um, of Christ into the story, but it's very veiled in yeah. Old Testament terms. Because right. I'm, I don't, you know, I try, to be, I try to stick as close to the original context, because I think that the unveiling of Christ was sequential it was it was not total it was um what do they call it um i can't remember the theological term but basically it means over time god reveals more of his messiah so that in the olden days we they didn't know as much about messiah as they do closer to the time of christ and then of course once christ comes a lot of obscure ambiguous passages become clear but but they weren't clear back then Right. And so I, I try to be, tr be true to that context, which makes it kind of fascinating reading. Very cool. Very cool. Well, where can uh, people check out your books and, and all the stuff that you got going on? Thank you. Thank you. I should have, I should have been plugging it throughout the, the interview. <laughs> Uh, okay. Amazon.com. That's the. It's exclusively at Amazon. You can buy it on Kindle for real cheap, or buy the paperback books. But there's something very cool that I offer people. Go to the website ChroniclesOfTheNephilim.com, and and you will find a whole bunch of very cool free stuff. I show. I I I have a bunch of tra book trailers that are cool. I've got me on video explaining some of the concepts. I've got a bunch of artwork from each of the books that is really cool, and I explain some of the characters of the novels if you want to introduce yourselves. I, I cast each of the novels like they were movies, so I have pictures of all the characters and descriptions of them, and a bunch of artwork, and a bunch of free articles related to the theology of, of the books that, were, that are some of my favorite articles by scholars. So there's a lot of free material at the web, website chroniclesofthenephilim.com if you want to kind of uh, get acquainted with it before you buy the novels or once you once you read the novels you want to go back to the website and see all the visuals that help uh, sort of fill out the storyline very cool and do you uh, do you have any plans or, or aspirations to make this into a TV series or a movie or something you know I would love to but I'm realistic and these are huge they would be 150 million dollar movies and <laughs> Hollywood doesn't really do that unless 
your Harry Potter or Twilight. So <laughs> here, here's the goal. If I can sell a million copies of my books, then yes, I have a chance of, but until that point in time, no, I, I, don't, I don't suspect it's going to be made into movies. And the other downside of it is, the bummer is, as some of your listeners may already know, uh, there is a movie about Noah being yes. made right, right now by Darren Aronofsky. And I actually, on my blog, my movie blog, which you can access through Chronicles of the Nephilim, I did a, a complete analysis and deconstruction of the script for the movie because the movie's not out, but I got a hold of the script, early and early script, and so I critiqued it from a biblical perspective, and sadly, it's going to be pretty. It's going to be uh, more about environmentalism and the false god <laughs> of, of Gaia and oh, boy. environment than it is about the Bible. And so, but w the point is, is once that movie's made, which is like a $100 million movie, they're not going to make another movie about Noah in a long time, so right. I'm not going to have a chance. However, my book Enoch could be made into a movie because it's before Noah, and it's really cool. It's all about Enoch as a giant killer. So I think that there is potential. I just have to sell a million copies. So go, everybody go out and buy it and tell your friends. <laughs> yes, definitely. Go check out uh, check out Brian's work. And um, Well, thank you, Brian, so much for, for uh, having this conversation. It's a fascinating conversation. Um, I think it's great what you're doing, uh, you know, just taking these topics and making it into something that is a, a great story, but also something that your young people can consume. And and obviously it sounds like a great read. I haven't actually been able to read them myself, but uh, I'm definitely, after this conversation, I'm going to go get them as soon as possible. So thanks so much. I appreciate All it. Right. Bye-bye. Can you hear me? Yo. Yo, what's up? Not much. Um, let me move locations real quick. Can you hear me? We can hear you. Can you hear me? You can hear me now. We can I, hear you now. I can actually hear you now. I think then, I have my... That's my good. You, my instruments are... Tuned. Yeah, you, well. you rule the air now. Yeah. On the air. Okay, well, uh, hey, everybody. My name is Basil, and uh, I, I used to be um, a co-host on Canary Cry Radio way back in 2013. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you tried calling in while we, have, we were having the conversation with Brian Godawa. Yes. But uh, that, didn't, that didn't go too well. No, I had no idea what you guys were saying, but it sounded like you guys were doing great. <laughs> you couldn't hear anything that we were talking about, but it sounded great. No, yeah, I was. Um, if if to give my position away a little bit, I was I was in an Applebee's, a friendly neighborhood Applebee's that I found. Um, well, obviously, the sound I, of sizzling bacon is going to overpower anything that we talk about. Yeah, I was. I couldn't hear you over the the neighborhood community. And the the sizzling platters as they came out, and I don't know stuff or whatever else they have in there. Um, <laughs> but I'm glad I got back in the line. And and I don't know. I mean, so you guys had a good conversation? It, yeah, it was it was a pretty good conversation. You know, we'll let okay. the uh, the audience decide. Uh, yeah, I was gonna was say I'll read I'll read some angry emails later and and <laughs> see how you guys really did. Yeah, yeah, we'll uh, find out eventually, one way right. or another. 
Yeah, okay. Well, I'll just let everybody know that I am still alive. I'm freezing where I am. Um, I'm out sitting on a, a crate. Um, I've got my winter jacket on. There's some bird poop next to me. Um, I've got some fingerless gloves, which is a bad choice. Next time, I'm going to spring for the full fingered glove option. Uh, let's see. There's a little bit of snow everywhere. Um, I'm on a Wi-Fi. I found some Wi-Fi. Oh, yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. How did you uh, connect to the... Uh Connect no. back onto the ether. Right, I'm on the I'm on the interwebs via what is this? A Wi-Fi network called DARPA Van One. Um, so whatever DARPA is, thanks for the free internet, guys. <laughs> that's really maybe nice. maybe there's a drone nearby that provided. I this, think that's uh, it. I yep. There's some very slow moving aircraft um, that have been circling above here for a while. Um, all right, so you talked to Brian. He's a cool guy. What is he from L.A.? He's a writer, director, is he not? Yeah, he's a filmmaker. I'm sh- and I'm, yeah. I'm sure a lot of what I'm saying right now is being censored just automatically <laughs> via my shared Wi-Fi network. Via the DARPA drone that's hovering over your, <laughs> right. your, your head that you don't see right now because right. Uh, they have uh, you know cloaking technologies now. Yeah, but... But yeah. So what, what do you what do you what do you uh, what have um, you seen? What do you? Uh, okay. What do I see? Well, not 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 right in front of you because you already described oh, you know the bird poop okay. and stuff. I'm, I'm I'm asking on this little, you know, excavation slash uh, travels, if you will. Right. Is there is there anything that um, might our audience might find interesting that you've uh, uh, come across? Right. Well, there's a train. If you can hear that. Uh, can you hear that? A little bit. I hear more wind. Woo! That train is really close. <laughs> that is a very close train, everyone. Oh, there's two trains. Two trains. All right, here's some interesting stuff. I see two trains. Um, one has a lot of flatbed truck, uh, train cars that are empty. I say about 150 empty flatbed train cars, which probably at one time held some drones or some UFOs or secret tank projects. And another train, I swear to you, I'm not lying to you right now, there's another train with about 200 train cars of those oil ones, the ones that hold, you know, fluids. And so I'm, I'm assuming that that's either filled with nuclear waste or some sort of uh, fuel for whatever was on those um, flatbeds. Um, I, don't, I don't think I've laughed this hard on computer. <laughs> <laughs> no, so yeah, that's about it. Um, yeah, for everyone else, just to, just to keep it uh, in the spirit of anonymity, I'm uh, on a long, long trip, as you could have guessed. Um, uh, across the, I'll, I'll, I will let you guys in on on at least a small portion of the locational secrets. Um, on the the lower forty eight states, I'm somewhere w- within the continental United States, um, and going back and forth and doing lots of fun things. So I apologize to everybody that I haven't been around for Canary Cry Radio uh, here for a while, but. Um, from what I hear, 
and from the lack of hate mail, or you know, at least the the small diminished amount, um, I can tell that Gonz is doing a great job keeping everybody on lockdown. Oh yeah, I meant to ask you, how was the um, prophecy forum? Uh, it was good. It was yeah. definitely fun. It, it was a good time. But uh, I think you know, just going over my presentation, and I I put the video out a few days ago, and in, in right. last episode, you know, I don't know if you heard it, but. I ramble for you know a while, and plus I play the uh, the audio, but yeah. it's definitely uh, you know it's kind of like a it's it's a rush, yeah. And but there's when I look back at the at the tape and stuff, there's so many points where I'm like, oh, I should have did right. this better or said this better well, or made this I, point better. Or, absolutely. Well, I will tell you that I did watch the video, oh, okay. and I'll say you did a really good job, and I'll say that yeah, there were some parts where I was like, God, come on, man. <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, that was great. It actually, I was really jealous. I kind of wish that I could have been around and done something for that. So, um, I think just between you and me, Gons, that we should do some more live stuff because um, that looked like a ball. Yeah, no, it was fun. And and you know, when we do our live stuff, it's going to be a, a, a fiasco. You know, it's going right. to have lights moving around and right. and people machines. in costumes and laser machines. Oh, laser machines and and you know, portable UFOs and it's, it's going to be just. I've a, got a giant. I just came across a giant armadillo uh, costume. So <laughs> we could just work that in somewhere. I don't know. Maybe do a, a Texas thing. What? Okay. So yeah, no, there's no explanation there. I, 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 I didn't say I was in Texas. A Texas thing. I said we could do a Texas thing. Oh, okay. Are you serious? Okay. I'm not in Texas freezing my butt off over oh, that's here. That's true. Yeah, the wind, the wind uh, sounds pretty chilly there. Yeah, the, I know you have a keen ear for temperature, for air temperature. <laughs> and I've always admired that about you. <laughs> I really feel like that's one of the gifts of the spirit that a you, lot. Okay, okay. Are you? Uh, are you? Uh, are you? Are you missing uh, California at all? I am. I I want to come home very badly, but I'm on a mission, and I'm going to continue on. Yeah, that. finish the mission first, and then maybe finish we'll on let you that back mission. in. Yeah, um, so, all right. Well, I don't know. Maybe I've held you guys long enough, but I'm glad that you had a good conversation, all of you people out there um thanks for continuing to listen to canary cry radio uh even with the devastating loss of me for a couple episodes i know some of you are just so disappointed uh <laughs> no but uh I, but good job guns thanks for holding it down man yeah yeah we'll we'll, we'll get back on it and, and you know i i did uh last episode i did mention that we do plan on doing an episode on water and worship music and and some of those things are starting to line up a little bit so Good. hopefully you'll get back because because the water episode is something that uh I'm yeah looking forward to that one was my idea just so everybody knows <laughs> just if you're listening right now when you listen to the water unless it sucks in that case it's gone says so <laughs> he puts the whole well, thing maybe maybe i'll make it suck now now that you know great to take all the credit for it i'll be great like, this H2? is how ministries fall, Gons. <laughs> this is how they fall. <laughs> okay, well, I'm gonna. Uh, I should sign off here. Um, yeah, you should go get go get warm and. A and, couple and, of black suburbans just pulled up, and I'm thinking I should go. Uh, you're you're suspicious being out in the open on a computer. 
yeah uh, chasing armadillos and running away from trains so I'll let yeah you know. no i don't get it this isn't california man people don't get that sort of thing here <laughs> all right boy okay. this is this is basil everybody i'm still alive thank you for hanging in there make sure to tune back in next time to canary cry radio and until then think outside the cage Thank you for listening to this episode of Canary Cry Radio. The show notes for this episode and many others are available at canarycryradio.com. Make sure to connect and like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash canarycryradio. Follow us on Twitter at Canary Cry Radio. If you would like to share the show in video format, you can find us on YouTube by searching Canary Cry Radio. Review us on iTunes with five stars and give us a thumbs up on StumbleUpon.com. We would like to thank those of you who have given us your support, prayers, and donations. If you would like to join us and support Canary Cry Radio financially, you could do so by visiting CanaryCryRadio.com and clicking the support tab. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, remember to think outside the cage.